Any other announcements or any other prayer concerns? Any others? Well, then I'm going to pray and open us up, and we'll start the class. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we gather together on this Father's Day, we want to thank you for all the fathers in this room. We want to thank you for our own fathers, many of whom, most of whom, have passed away. We pray, Lord, that you would be with all the fathers of our nation. This is a difficult time to be a father in our nation, a difficult time to be responsible for the lives of other people. And so we pray your mercies upon all of us who have the privilege of being a father and all those who will be fathers in the near future. Lord, we pray this morning also for those of our class that are traveling uh, because it's summertime, we pray that you would give them your travel mercies, and we pray that they would have a good time wherever they are, and that you would be teaching them those lessons that you have for us when we take a little time off to look at the world from a different perspective. We also want to pray for those who are sick and who need your healing touch. We ask, Lord Jesus, that by the power of your own Holy Spirit, you would be with them and watch over them and heal them, and be with those doctors, physicians, nurses, and technicians that minister day by day your mercy. We pray, Lord, for our class that as we come to your word, we might not merely hear it, but that it would transform us so that we might be your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I told you last week... Um, it's not that I'm not interested in the subject matter of sex, but I'm too big a prude to teach on it publicly. Uh, so I decided I wasn't going to do that. Uh, and then I realized that I did have something that might be of interest today in a special way because it's Father's Day. But I'm going to have to go back to sort of explain things to you uh, of how I got to this lesson. Uh, first of all, right at the end of my actual ministry career, Kathy and I uh, wrote a little book uh, of Bible study called Salt and Light. And we did so for a reason that I think is important for you all to know. But our church had a very strong small group Bible study program for uh, 18 years plus five, so for 23 years or so. Uh, we had classes where we read through the Bible in a single year. Uh, it meant for two hours. It was done in a small group format. It was actually originally a Methodist program. Uh, we also had a theology uh, group where you read the Bible through, but you read it under heads of doctrine. So you did the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the fall. You did it in that way. And near the end of my professional career, I noticed it stopped working. I noticed that the young people simply refused to sign up for a 35 or 36 week class where they had to be together for two hours every week and do 30 minutes of reading a day. It just didn't work. And so uh, our DCE, our Director of Christian Education, was a lady named Robin Ballou. I told Robin, we've got to find a replacement for this because it's not working anymore, and which was very sad because Kathy and I invested a lot of our professional lives in what was called uh, believer, Christian believer and disciple. Well, eventually, Kathy came to a conference right here in this church in San Antonio, Texas, uh, by the Outreach Foundation, where she heard a guy speak about a worldwide movement of disciple-making 
uh, the particular book she came home demanding that I read was called T4T. And uh, I came home one night and she announced that the church had started T4T. We were teaching a class and it would be meeting in our home beginning in about two weeks. Um, so I said, okay, fine. Uh, and so we did T4T the last two years that we were uh, in, in ministry in, in Memphis. Well, the theory of T4T is, by the way, you can buy the book. It's on the Internet. It's usually used for $4. But basically, the theory was in the East, and I mean Asia primarily, but it's used, actually, there's a huge movement in San Antonio, um, there is a movement called T4T. It's usually done among charismatic churches, but basically they convert people to Christ through a small group Bible study experience and immediately make them disciple makers. There's no gap between the moment they become a Christian and they start putting their faith to work in bringing other people to Christ. And it's all done orally. So the Bible studies, because in some of these countries they don't have written Bibles, all the Bible stories that have to be taught, everything has to be done from memory. So it was really kind of fun. We got people to memorize um, the Bible stories through this vehicle. Well, um, it doesn't work as well in America as you might expect as it does in Asia where people have less to do and less television, less media. Uh, but it has been successful, and that got Kathy and I interested in the subject of disciple making. That got us interested in how to make disciples in the late 20th century. Uh, now, I'm going to skip forward. When I retired, I went up to Ohio for a couple of years, and that church already had a small group program. They had a very strong small group program. They had a lady who'd been in Young Life when she was young. She had been, how many of you know, what's it called, Moms? Moms in Touch. She'd done lots of these little studies, and she ran the small group network. Um, and it had been shut down by the former pastor, who wasn't very enlightened, and she came to me and said, well, can I do this again? And I said, sure, you can do it. Go right ahead. Uh, I said, uh, and I'll, every so often I would do sermon series that coordinated with the Bible study so that the whole church could kind of be on a, on a roll. Well, well, when I left, there were, came, there were about 20. When I left, there were 40. And within a year after I left, there were about 80 small groups in this church, all of them doing different forms of Bible study. Uh, so I wrote the session a series of letters, basically, on disciple-making in the 21st century, and that later on became this little book that I published called Crisis of Discipleship. The reason I'm bringing it up is it's got 12 chapters. Uh, someday if your class invites me, we'll take 12 weeks out and chapter by chapter we'll do this book, but I need to have PowerPoints and I need to have the other teachers in line because probably 12 consecutive weeks is too much Chris. Um, well, that brings me to... Today, because um, Dave is here, when I got here, the church was working on the Zabinden Lecture Series, out of which came this Zabinden Center idea, out of which came the idea of having a seminary campus and a disciple-making network here at First Presbyterian Church. And so, as is my custom, Kathy knows, Kathy and I are the exact opposite. So, in a crisis... I get a book and start studying to figure out what's wrong. And Kathy just jumps in and tries to solve the problem. It's two entirely different ways of approaching life. Uh, 
So basically, poor David West has had to put up with this. So I started with disciple making in the Bible and have written, I think now it's about eight letters of various, I'm now up to the 20th century, of how it is we got to the form of training we have today which doesn't work and what we might want to do to substitute for the form of training we have today that doesn't work. But I want to say it's very challenging for people in our age group. We have a few young people back there. You don't count in this. Uh, because we're so used to America being a Christian country where most of our friends go to church and they have reasonably stable family lives and they have jobs and they work and their lives are rather organized. But our children and grandchildren do not live in such a world do not live in such a world. And I thought this morning I would tell a little story about our daughter. We have a daughter who's a pretty conservative Christian. Uh, she went to SMU. She was involved in RUF at, at uh, uh, SMU. Uh, she helped plant a church for the PCA in Dallas when she was at SMU. She went to New York and she went to Redeemer and she uh, went to NYU. And then she graduated from NYU and she got a job in the design business. Now, if you'd like to know about what business is it in New York that is not characterized by strong Christian do doctrine and morals, that would be the one you would choose. That would be one of the businesses you would choose. And she worked for about, what is it, three years or so, uh, in an environment where not only were the people not Christians, they didn't like Christians. They were not only not Christians, they didn't think Christianity was a good thing. And it's remarkable to me to watch Clara at work with people who are not Christians. Because my tendency is to engage. This isn't right. Her tendency is to love and to listen and to nod her head quite a bit while she goes about her business doing, living the life she wants to live and showing them by her behavior what it means to be a Christian. So what's the payoff for us here? In the next few years, America is not going to become a more Christian country. It's going to become less. Christianity is not going to become more accepted in public life. It's going to become less. And so we're going to have to learn that hard lesson that was learned by the early church in the first century of how is it that I be a Christian and by word and deed, share my faith, but do so in an environment that's not hospitable. That's the question that we all face and that our children and grandchildren face. And so I hope today, by studying First and Second Timothy and Titus just a little bit, to help us all learn how to do that. That's, that's, that's what I would like for us to do today. So with that... I'm going to start, and I'm not going to ask you all to read as much today as I normally do, but I may as we go on. I want to read to you from the very beginning of Paul's first letter to Timothy. Now, little thing about Timothy, first and second, and Titus are probably the last letters that Paul wrote. It's a little difficult to figure out the timing of the letters, but... Second Timothy, as we will learn before the day is over, is almost clearly written at the end of Paul's life or around the year 67 AD. And he's probably in jail, he's probably in Rome, and he's probably about to die. 
So that letter, we pretty much know its setting. Uh, Titus appears to have been written a bit earlier than that. And 1 Timothy, of course, by tradition, was written earlier than that. Okay? Uh, but they all come from near the end of the apostles' career. They're different than the other letters that we have in the New Testament from Paul because they are not written to churches. They're not written to churches. They're written to people and special people at that. There are only four letters in the New Testament that have that characteristic from Paul, Philemon, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, where they are not theological letters written to a church in order that that church might get its doctrine right or its morals right. It's written to people. And we're going to talk about who those people were. So Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. In 2 Timothy, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Jesus Christ, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And in Titus, he begins by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the fruit of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness, to Titus, my true child in the faith. So, it's Father's Day. I thought this would be a place to start. Paul is writing to two of his closest associates in ministry. These are two people who play an extremely important role in Paul's life. As you might remember, right before the second missionary journey, Barnabas and Paul had an argument over John Mark. John Mark had left the missionary group prematurely during the first missionary journey. Paul felt that he should not be invited to go on the second journey. Barnabas, who was always willing to rescue the person that wasn't liked, remember he rescued Paul, uh, takes uh, John Mark and they go off on a missionary journey. And Paul sets out with Silas until he gets to Lystra, where he meets a young man named Timothy. And Timothy, from that day forward, is one of his closest associates. He sends him on missions to churches that are very delicate. For example, we know that the Corinthian church was troubled, and we know it was Timothy that Paul sent there. The same thing is true of Titus. We do not know exactly when Titus joined Paul, but we do know that he is sent to Corinth uh, to take care of some business for Paul in 2 Corinthians, which might be before 1 Corinthians. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians, he's already there ministering to the Corinthians. And we know that he went to Crete because he was in Crete when the letter of Titus was written. We know that he was with Paul in Jerusalem at the First Jerusalem Council because Whereas Timothy had to be circumcised because he was half Jewish, Titus is all Greek, he doesn't have to get circumcised. And we know that he's made reference to in Galatians. So these are people that were leaders in the early church by tradition. Titus is the first bishop of Crete, and Timothy is the first bishop of Ephesus. These are very close friends of Paul. How did they get to be leaders of the church? Well, guess what? They're no seminaries. 
So they couldn't sign up to go to Princeton. It wasn't possible. Uh, they simply joined Paul, and for a period of years, by the time 2 Timothy's written, Timothy's probably been with Paul upwards of 20 years. Okay, we can't say we know for sure about uh, uh, Titus, but I can tell you that 2 Chronicles, pardon me, 2 Corinthians is a fairly early letter of Paul's. So Titus has been around a long time too. So how did they learn how to be bishops? How did they learn how to be leaders of the church? Paul. Or in other words, they watched. They watched. Now in one of my letters I point this out. How did the 12 disciples get to be leaders in the church? They watched Jesus. He hung around with them for three years. They didn't just hear what he was teaching. They didn't go to a classroom to learn. They watched someone who was doing it. And that gives us the first and great clue to why the church in America and in the West is so troubled today, because we have decided to treat leaders, train leaders in a new and different way. They grow up in churches, most of them grow up in churches about the size of this one. Okay? The vast majority of people that go to seminary go to large churches before they go, particularly in conservative denominations. But when they get out, they end up in some place like Brownsville, Tennessee, with a church of, say, 130 or 80, which is a completely different way of doing ministry than you would find at First Presbyterian Church of Houston, Texas. Kathy can tell you, we were at First Presbyterian Church of Texas. I was a deacon, an elder. We went to seminary, got out of seminary, and I have a church that, before I was elected, had 39 people in worship. I managed to get it to 80 right away, and it did grow but the fact is, it was nothing like First Presbyterian Church of Houston. Basically, four families had founded the church. The children and grandchildren of the four families were still in the church after 100 years. And they ran the church kind of in, as a, their own chapel. And the pastor was sort of the chaplain of the group and the community. So it was a whole different way of ministry. And you, I wasn't trained to do that in seminary. I was trained to preach sermons. And I knew how to run a fairly large church from my experience in Houston. So, the way we're going to spread the Christian faith in the next century looks more like Paul and Jesus and less like the University of Paris when John Calvin went there or Princeton Seminary today. It's going to have to be done by local churches, by local leaders, who undertake to find qualified and capable people who have a true faith and who can, in fact, be made into leaders of the gospel. I, I, I want to tell you just one story from my seminary career, but when I was in seminary, there was a lady there who, she had two attributes that are always attractive. She was beautiful, uh, she was actually smart, um, and she was a, a, a runner. She was a jogger. Actually, had run marathons. She decided to go to seminary because she wanted to know if this Christianity thing was true. So Union, she came from a good family, had plenty of money. Union admitted her, a person who didn't believe anything on the day she came. Of course, she bought everything that the seminary faculty said, hook, line, and sinker, because she had no, 
background. I tell people I'd been a leader of a church, so if they said something that didn't conform to reality, I was pretty much, well, that doesn't work. Uh, but she had no background. Now, this young lady, who's now in her mid-40s, has subsequently been through a, a divorce, mid-50s. Um, but she's been a good pastor, but the churches she has served have not grown. She basically serves small rural churches in North Carolina. Uh, but she didn't have a mentor who, could, who grew a church who she could watch and learn to emulate. All the knowledge she came with out of seminary was right up here. So we want to develop leaders through relationships. Okay, so this is my first, by the way, you can take this home. I'm not going to go through all the questions. But who was the most formative person in your Christian life? That's the first question. Anybody want to answer it? I know what Kathy's going to say. Go ahead. Your mother. By the way, David Hannon ran a pretty big real estate company at one point in Houston. Who was the most formative person in your personal Christian walk? Your wife, who I assume you saw pretty often. In terms of faith. In the Buddhist temple. Here. Yeah. Who else? I, I have two things. One, to, to be a Buddhist, and I taught Bible study to, to Chinese students, it is so difficult. And when we're talking about discipleship and how to approach, someone who is entrenched in Buddhism or Hinduism, we don't convert them overnight. So it's very important what he says is that it became a gradual thing. We all want to just do one Bible study and think we're going to convert someone. And for me, I, I uh, came from Germany to German parents, and the Lutheran church in Dallas, I had attracted our family to come to the United States. And I actually had three uh, women that were my mentors, wonderful women of God who were uh, pastors' wives. So I feel very, very privileged. So three women. three women. How long did you know those women? 50 plus year. 50 plus year. Who else wants to share? I would say early life, my mother. But my mother died uh, at 51 when Penny and I had only been married 10 months. And then we had other tragedies that occurred very early on. But we had the great good fortune to move into a house across the street from Elaine and Walter Dunlop. Walter and Elaine walked up our walk way one night to introduce themselves and it changed our lives. And you were neighbors? And you stayed in that house in that neighborhood for how long? Did you know the Dunlops? Well, that not really that long, seven years, seven years. But, um, but it, it never changed. I mean, we have a, mm -hmm. a whole story to tell about, about what they did for us. 
and certainly they have that same story to tell about us to them. So anybody else have a story to share? But, yes. Your dad? The household. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, as we like to say in our house, I'm in charge of nuclear warfare and Kathy's in charge of everything else. <laughs> um, well, um, the reason we, these stories are important is you can see that in every case it's a personal relationship, right? And in every case it's a relationship that was not short. It was not a week, a day, a Bible study. It was over time. Uh, now when God wants to send you in ministry as he did me, he doesn't have forever, but Basically, I was saved in a small group Bible study in Houston, Texas, uh, led by a, a young, very young, inexperienced pastor. Uh, but there were several people in that Bible study, some of whom we've been in contact with this week, who for a period of about three or four years uh, basically were around me a lot every Friday night and uh, basically got me into the Christian faith and gave me some basic understanding of what the Christian faith was all about. So my question is, who are you developing? By the way, you're going to take these sheets home, so I'd like you to sit down and think about it this afternoon. Who are you developing as a disciple? Who are you developing as a disciple? It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be the Apostle Paul. Your mothers and others were not doing ministry worldwide. Uh, it just needs to be a person who you regularly are in contact with, who has an interest in the Christian faith, who would like to grow. That's, that's, that's what Paul did, I think. You know, he went into cities, he went to the synagogue, he preached there, a few people would be converted, and he would help those who were converted grow. And out of that mass of people, a very few of them, like Timothy and Titus, and we know there were others, by the way, uh, a few of them had leadership potential. And for those people, he spent even more time with them as they watched him, you're going to see this as we read the book through, but he over and over again says, you have seen my way of life. You have seen what I have done. And he's really saying, you saw it, you can do it. <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying. You saw me do it, you can do it too. Uh, and so that's his method is to be in relationship with people over time, the teaching that went on was, by our standards of seminary training, probably pretty simplistic, but it was basically they saw how Paul answered questions to people who had questions about the faith over time. And if you read all of the letters of Paul, there's a theology in there which systematic theologians can write books and books about, but Paul didn't do it that way. He basically just answered the question for the person that was at hand that day. And over time, he forms what we call Christian theology. Okay, so basically, yes, please ask questions. Thank you. So we're hearing this challenge of
Thank you. And I'll say this. This is not meant to be. One of the problems with Young Life, which I've seen over the years as a pastor and Campus Crusade and others, is basically we take these kids and we develop these really good youth groups, and they really are good, and it's a lot of fun, and the kids run with a crowd. But when they get off to the University of Texas, they might run with the crowd, but a different crowd. <laughs> Because what we've subliminally taught them is to run with the crowd and be like the crowd. <laughs> so having adult relationships, having relationships that are outside the crowd of I'm 19 years old is really important uh, because that's how they learn how a 50-year-old might look at a problem. You know, our son was really, really wiggly and he was really ill-behaved and we had this old ex-gunner from a B-17 he was in the 15th Air Force, if you want to think of those tail gunners, 85% of them died before they got out of Europe. And Mr. Ned Rooks didn't like wiggly little boys at the dinner table on Wednesday night. He was opposed to that. And Trammell complained to me about it. I said, Trammell, it's good for you to know that not everybody in the world thinks this is funny. And Mr. Ned happens to be one of those crusty old guys who doesn't think it's funny. <laughs> And so having the older people around, even if we don't always agree, is good. Because it teaches young people to see the world from more angles. It's the angles you see the world from that make your wisdom. Okay, so how did Paul do it? I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Please, thank you so much for that, Ben. That was perfect. Ask questions because everybody knows I like to answer questions. Um, so how did he do it? First of all, if I could read the whole letter to you you would see that Paul has been in a deep, personal relationship with Timothy and Titus. In particular with Timothy, he's aware of some issues. He's aware that Timothy is meek and he doesn't like confrontation, so he has to tell him, do not let people disrespect you. He is aware that Timothy is of a weak constitution, and so he tells him, take care of yourself. These pieces of advice he gives are not abstract you know, as a pastor, you should always take care of your family and go to the gym at least three times a week because it says so in my book. It's because he had had a relationship with Timothy and understood Timothy's strengths and weaknesses. And that's, once again, you can't get that without personal relationships. I can know everything there is to know about the Bible, but I may not be able to transmit it to you <laughs> if I don't know you. Okay, secondly... He sets an example. So my question is, what connections do you have that might translate into a long-term mentoring relationship? Uh, just, just a word to the guys and the girls too. You know, to be a Christian mentor, the relationship doesn't have to be Christian. Uh, I don't know how many of you people might have heard of a guy named George Jordan. He, he ran a big insurance company in Houston. George was a Christian. He did have a Bible study up in his farm. But basically, people learned to be Christian businessmen by watching George at work. Uh, oh, I say, people learned to be a Christian businessman by watching George at work. And he had a son-in-law named Danny Taylor, who was one of my primary disciples. I learned to be a Christian 
businessman, not by reading books, although I read some, but by watching Danny at work. <laughs> I just watched what Danny did and tried to be half as good as he was. So developing relationships does not have to be a Christian relationship at its beginning. You are a Christian. It's going to bleed through. So you don't have to kind of worry about, is it a Christian relationship? You don't have to talk about Christ all the time to make it a Christian relationship. You just have to bring your Christian faith to the business at hand during the day that you're in, and eventually people want to know. I think I've told you all this story, but it's one of my best stories. I, we had a client that was a bankrupt radio station operator on the Gulf Coast. Just to let you know, uh, FM radio stations don't do well on coastlines because half of your uh, bandwidth are fish, and fish don't have radios. <laughs> So this bank had loaned money on the assumption that this bandwidth would create this many viewers, but in reality it was half as many. Well, we were in a negotiation, and one day I just didn't take advantage of this guy. He wasn't very smart to begin with, and I just didn't take advantage of him. So we got on a plane. It happened to be a private plane going back to Houston. Uh, and the guy I was with, who was the manager in charge of, he said, I saw you do that. He said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yeah. And we had a wonderful conversation that night. But really, it was just what I'd done in the negotiation that made the difference. By the way, we, we got the radio station. Um, so, second thing is example. Timothy was well aware after 20 years of Paul's character. Now, I want to say, I happen to be a big fan of Paul, but if you read the New Testament carefully, Paul's not a person without his faults. He's a bit aggressive, he has a tendency to push people the wrong way. He's impatient a lot of the time. He's highly strung. He apparently had some physical disabilities. He's not a perfect person, so Timothy knows all that too. But he also knows that Paul's a man of God uh, and is a good example for him. So here's sort of the takeaway. To be a good example, you don't have to be a perfect example. <laughs> to be a good example, you don't have to be perfect. We're none of us perfect. We're not going to be perfect. We all have weaknesses. Paul knew Timothy's weaknesses and Timothy knew Paul's weaknesses. Uh, so that just be an example and don't worry about, I mean, apologize if you make a mistake, but um, don't worry about being a perfect example because you're not going to be that. So are you an example to others and if so, who? That's my question for you to answer this afternoon. Prayerfulness. This was one of my little surprises. I actually put the letter I wrote to David in a different order. But if you turn to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, the first thing that Paul says is pray. <laughs> the first thing he says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for those who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and a quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Uh, Paul sets an example of prayerfulness for Timothy and Titus. He sets an example of prayerfulness about small things and big things, like the Roman Empire, uh, which I think he was interested in at the time of these letters because he was about to be crucified by them. Um, so prayerfulness is an important part of the Christian life, and all we have to do is set aside whatever part of our day we can legitimately set aside for prayer. 
And I can tell you, you know, when I was a, a lawyer, it wasn't as long as it was when I was a pastor. And when I was a pastor, it wasn't as long as it is now that I'm retired. Uh, it's because you have other things you have to do. But prayerfulness needs to sit at the center of your life. And people notice that. Even in business, people notice if you pray before you make decisions. You may not even be showing it very much, but they notice you're doing it. Okay? Um, okay, so who are you praying for? And do you pray regularly? Do you have people that you pray for regularly? Over time, meaning if it takes 20 years to get this prayer answered, I'm, I'm in for the prayer. Let's see. Um, what did I do here? Okay, encouragement. Okay. Uh, one of the things that Paul is after in these letters is to encourage his leaders to keep going. Now, we all know that it's easy in the Christian life, it's easy in business, it's easy in every area of life to lose hope, isn't it? And what people need sometimes more than anything else is just a word of encouragement. Uh, I gave you um, some examples of that in the, in the outline. I'm not going to go into it now so much, but basically good mentors and good disciple makers do occasionally have to point out this didn't really work the way it was supposed to work. But actually the business of leadership is 90% encouragement and about 10% correction. <laughs> so actually the business of uh, mentoring people is about encouraging them to keep going. The mistakes of yesterday cannot be undone. <laughs> so we don't worry about that. We worry about trying to encourage them to keep going so the mistake of yesterday is not the mistake of tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and because that's what can be avoided, not the mistake of yesterday. So encouragement is so important. And just think about, I'll ask the question, can you think of a time when you were feeling like a failure and someone encouraged you? Can you think of a time? What did that mean to you? What did that mean to you when I see myself as a failure is not no good, but this person encouraged me to keep going? Appreciation. Um, I'm going to tell you about a project I'm in, but you know, businesses where it's all correction and no encouragement and appreciation really are dysfunctional. And it turns out that the people that manage those businesses do not do very well over long periods of time. People have made studies of that, so we know it to be true. Uh, encouragement to keep going, to overcome failure, to withstand pressure, all that's so important. Okay, doctrinal fidelity. I put this first in the little letter I wrote to David, but basically if I were to read all these letters to you, uh, you would find out that Paul is encouraging Timothy and Titus to remain faithful to the gospel that has been transmitted to them by him. He was given it by Christ and by the other apostles and he wants them to be faithful to that doctrine. And it's, some of the letters are a little bit uh, confusing uh, because he doesn't want them to get involved in aimless arguments, that is arguments over details that don't matter, uh, he doesn't want them to get involved in endless genealogies and arguments over uh, the history of the Jewish people and was Jesus qualified genetically to be the Messiah. 
uh, questions which even in those days were not answerable. Uh, he doesn't want them to get involved in philosophical discussions that go nowhere. Now, if you read the letters on your own, I'll give you a little clue. By the time this letter was written, what ultimately becomes Gnosticism exists. And to give you the long and the short of it, Gnosticism is the belief that we are saved by what we know. So that there were a series of gnosis, that's the word for knowledge in Greek, uh, that the enlightened would have. This belief always made those people who are smart better than those people who aren't. Always made those people who are educated better than those people who aren't. Uh, many people say our problem in America is we live in a Gnostic culture, uh, and I think it's true in many ways. Um, if you just think how sometimes the mainline churches have treated our brothers and sisters in Africa who don't agree with them about certain moral stands, and they call them backward. They call them backward for that. Um, we have a tendency, all of us, to do that. Uh, this Gnostic belief uh, translates to another area, and that's the area of character, because Gnosticism inevitably takes you in one of two directions. The mind is everything and the body is nothing, so that either I should diminish my body and become an ascetic and not gratify any of my natural desires, or it doesn't matter. Eat, drink, and be merry because it's my mind where it is in my salvation. Now, that's where you have America today in a, in a, in a nutshell. We are a profoundly Gnostic culture about morality. Uh, we have chosen one of the two options, which, by the way, I would choose eat, drink, and be merry if it was me, so I don't necessarily think badly of people who choose that option, but uh, we've chosen an option to divide what we know from who we are. And that explains a lot of the divisions and a lot of the dysfunction, not just in our culture, abstractly, but in our families, in our children, in our friends, in a lot of life where people have divided themselves internally and they aren't whole anymore. And when you're not whole anymore, you get in lots of trouble in a variety of areas. Uh, so character and morals count. Doctrine counts. I tell you, doctrine counts because it's like, I used to tell a professor this, he didn't like it, but basically I think of good doctrine as like a freeway. We hear a lot in our church about the Reformed tradition. Well, that's a freeway. That's an Orthodox freeway. That they, but the Catholics have a freeway and the Lutherans have a freeway, and the Anglicans have a freeway, and the Baptists, we don't like to admit that, but it's true, the Baptists have a freeway, the Bible churches have a freeway. Uh, we're not alike, but at the core, there is a common Christian faith and Christian morals that we all share, uh, and that we are all on the same road. Um, Kathy knows we, it's inevitable when you do missions that the Catholic Church gets knocked around in Latin America, and I don't like that. But Catholics are Christians. They have good churches. They have good churches in the places we, we, we minister. Uh, and our job as ministers is to take the non-Christians and make them Christians, not to take people from the Catholic Church and make them Presbyterians. I don't think God counts that at all. Just want my own personal opinion. I don't think we get any brownie points for that. <laughs> you know? Uh, some of you know Willow Creek. Willow Creek was a huge church, it was a huge church up in Chicago. 
But when they did studies, they showed that a lot of the, uh, the, the, the seekers, the non-Christians becoming Christians, were simply Roman Catholics who grew up in a very strict Roman Catholic Northeastern school who didn't like Roman Catholicism, but they had an urging for God, so they came back to church. And they chose Willow Creek. Well, once again, I'm not sure we get that much benefit from that. Now, of course, we're happy to disciple whomever God gives us. That we are. And sometimes people have to shift denominations just to get a need met. Uh, but we shouldn't, it's those non-Christians out there we should be concentrating our attention on. That's who Paul carried his attention on. Conflict. You know, this is an area that um, Paul acknowledges to both of his young followers, they're not young by this time, they're in their 40s probably, uh, that conflict is a part of leadership, it's a part of being in community with people, ergo, it's a part of the church. There is no church without conflict, there's no business without some conflict, there's no neighborhood without some conflict, there, wherever two or more are gathered, even in his name, they don't agree about everything. Uh, so that we need to recognize that conflict is a part of the Christian walk and how we handle it is what matters. The conflict itself is just a sign that we're human. That's what it's a sign of. It's a sign that we're human. We don't all agree. We don't always get along. We can be judgmental. We can have different opinions. And we have to get through that. And Paul has some pretty good advice during these letters. He's going to tell them, look, don't remand the older men harshly. You're younger. In this culture, that's a bad thing. So be gentle with the older men, be gentle with the younger women, be gentle with the wives. He's got lots of, and don't back down. <laughs> P.S. Timothy, because you're inclined to do this, I want to let you know, don't back down. You've got to continue to go on, you've got to continue to correct, you've got to continue to scold, you've got to continue to do what you're called to do as a leader, even though it's extremely unpleasant. Uh, and Titus, I think, had even more conflict where he was. I won't get into that. So, uh, last thing I want to talk about a little bit is organization. You know, um, my wife happens to be a little bit this way sometimes. There is this idea that if you're a good Christian, you only need organization. In fact, organizations are kind of bad. And they, they just don't work well and they, they quench the spirit. Well, my answer to that in my church is always was, unfortunately, we have to play the electric bill. So we do need a budget, we do have to have organization, we do have to pay our electric bill just like everybody else in Memphis has to pay their electric bill, and so we have to be managed right. So early on, the church did, from the beginning, have an organization. It never was without an organization. One of the best books I've read this year was by a Greek Orthodox uh, graduate student. It was a PhD thesis. His thesis was the, the early church was not what the Protestants think it was, it's what we are. And believe me, there's a strong argument that that's the case because the early church had the following things. Early on, Paul anoints elders. Early on, from the very beginning. Acts chapter 6, we've already got deacons. So the apostles, who translate to elders, have already said we cannot get into the business of running this organization. We've got to have these deacons do that. And then we're going to take care of preaching the word and we're going to take care of prayers and we're going to take care of managing the community. So day one, they've made, well, within weeks, they've made that decision. Then, as the, they go out, 
They can't stay somewhere forever. Paul can't stay forever. So when he leaves, he's got to leave leadership. So they anoint elders. And then we know, because by the time of 2 Timothy, they use this word elder and this word episkopos, presbyteros and episkopos, almost interchangeably. We know that by the end, they had bishops. And what a bishop was, was you have a city. Think about the church in Corinth was not, they didn't have any buildings. They had houses. So those of you who've traveled in the Middle East know they weren't even big houses most of the time. Uh, so you have all these little small groups led by elders all over the city. And those of us who've run small group ministries know this to be true, that you're going to have somebody teach the wrong thing. You can't have 80 small groups in the church without somebody going off the rails. So they had a bishop, a, an episcopos, one elder, who had supervisory responsibility over the rest to be sure it didn't go badly, uh, and that these small groups were properly managed. Now, whether by the time of these two letters it's in full force, I don't really think it was. I don't think most scholars do believe that. But basically, what becomes the Roman Catholic hierarchy is there from day one. That's what I want to tell you. Because wherever two or more gathered in my name, you've got to have some structure. And when it gets to be, what are we, 2,000 members? How much? 3,000 members? When it gets to be thousands, it takes a lot of organization. Uh, and so Paul wants them, and he tells them exactly two things. The nature of the organization, and he tells them the qualifications for leadership. He says, these are the kind of person I want you to look out for. And basically, it would be the kind of person that Timothy and Titus were when Paul was looking out for them. <laughs> and was choosing them. So that's my lesson. This is my call. Um, we have some young people here, I'm so glad we do, but the hair color in this room is massively mine. Yeah, uh, that's why I have a white suit. Actually, I have a white suit because it's gonna be 100 today. Um, we only have so much time and I think when we get to the end of our life, we have to ask, what is it that I want to leave behind, don't we? Am I not doing well? Okay, well. When we get near the end of our life, we have to ask the question, what is it I want to leave behind? And there's nothing we leave behind more important than the relationships that we have built and the continuation of the faith we have lived by. Right? Uh, so that all the other things, I have a bucket list, by the way, and a lot of things on my bucket list are, have nothing to do with Christianity. You're going to learn about one of them in just a minute. Uh, but uh, we all have our bucket lists and things we like to do, but nothing is more important than the relationships we will leave behind. And in today's environment in America, there's nothing we can do for our country more important than mentoring a new generation of leaders. If some of you know I write a blog. My blog is all about political philosophy sometimes. Uh, there is no solution to our country's problems in a macro way that you and I can ever institute. Zero. All we can do is change individual lives and hope for the best. This is where we are. This is where Paul was. The Roman Empire was disintegrating by the end of his lifetime. He, Nero was the emperor. Uh, we can only transmit the faith we have received
to our children and our grandchildren, to our friends and to our neighbors, and leave them behind with that deposit of faith. That's all Paul did. That's all Jesus did. He chose 12 guys, and when it was over, he left them with the deposit of faith and trusted that they would follow his example, which fortunately they did. So I want to leave you with this. I know that Lewis Abinden used to preach on this quote. Many pastors preach on this quote. There's a very famous sermon in the 19th century by this. So Paul, at the end of his second letter to Timothy, says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me and on that day. And not only me, but also all those who have longed for his appearing. The promise that Paul received for himself is a promise that we too have. We have the same promise and the same hope that he had if only we uh, go about our daily lives and try to share the faith by word and by deed that we've received. And that's the end of the lesson. Um, I'm going to give you, I said, I've always said this, I've, I've written this little book um, that um, I'd love to come sometime and do several weeks because learning to share our faith. Most people in America, most Christians in America will not share their faith once during their lifetime. That's a bad record. Uh, because the only commandment he gave us was to go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So if we're not even once doing that, well, we're really in bad shape. Um, so that most people don't, however, because they don't know how and they're afraid. So one of the big purposes of this book is to show you how to do it and not be afraid. And do it in such a way that you're not going to get much pushback. I mean, I've been at this for a lot of years, and I don't really have one pushback except for a seminary professor. But if you are nice to people, they don't push back. If you let it become natural, they don't push back because they're ready when you say something. <laughs> uh, so that there's a way to do this that you don't need to be scared. You do know what to say. You don't have to say, you don't have to repeat all of this in one lesson. That's not possible. So that's the first thing I wanted to say to you. Um, take about two. Now the second one is just personal. So I told you I have a bucket list. And for years I wanted to write a novel. A very special kind of a novel, a murder mystery. And because I used to be a lawyer, I always thought a big law firm is a perfect place to put a murder mystery because it's always full of intrigue, believe me. Um, so uh, I wrote a book called Marshland that you can get. Um, and um, I used, uh, you know, I published as a Christian writer under my own name. I didn't think it was a good idea to mix things up, so I published under the name Alistair West. But you will find out there's a Christian story going on in this book. Um, I want to tell you why I did it. Once again, I've written some nice little books about Christian faith, none of which are ever read by non-Christians. In fact, they're not even read by Christians. Well, I wanted to see if we could... I could write something to bring a non-Christian into contact with the Christian faith. Because in my own life, reading C.S. Lewis's novels when I was a young, immature lawyer was part of my journey into the Christian faith. 
So I've written a little novel, and for your, my favorite character in the novel is a Vietnamese lady who is both a Buddhist and a Catholic. Uh, so you will enjoy that part of the novel. Um, so um, Kathy knows I'm, I created this character, now I'm in love with her. Um, so um, I just want to give that to you all, and thank you all for letting me teach you today, and I'm sure I'll be back sometime. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the example of Paul, who was a father in the faith uh, to a generation of Christian leaders that would ultimately transform the Roman world. We confess to you, Lord, that we've not done a very good job of transforming our own little worlds uh, here, either in the United States or in Texas or in San Antonio or our neighborhood or even sometimes our church. And so we pray, Lord, that you would allow the message of Paul's life uh, to enter into our own hearts and that you would um, permit us uh, to be your witnesses uh, in this our time. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.